This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Uh, once again, this transmission is coming to you live via my little studio beneath the stairs up in Thornhill, Ontario. And uh, Ian, my fine rockabilly friend, is behind the big audio board back in Liberty Village. Ryan is running our YouTube live stream from his lair in deepest, darkest East York. And once again, Albert is on assignment, this time in Jordan, attempting to negotiate a long-lasting Mideast peace. We wish him Godspeed. Author researcher John Kerner is here to blow the lid off the JFK Jr. plane crash. Hard to imagine it will be 20 years next July. And John will be here for the full two hours. And we'll open up the phone lines in hour two to take questions and comments as John lays out his compelling evidence. As I say, John F. Kennedy Jr. What a resume. What a future he had, a lawyer, a journalist, a magazine publisher, of course, the son of President John F. Kennedy. And it was on the evening of July 16th, 1999. He died when the airplane he was flying crashed into the Atlantic Ocean, about seven and a half miles west of Martha's Vineyard. And his wife, Carolyn Bissett, and sister-in-law, Lauren Bissett, were also on board and died. Uh, it was a, a Piper Saratoga light aircraft. It departed from New Jersey's Essex County Airport, and its intended route was along the coastline of Connecticut and across Rhode Island Sound to Martha's Vineyard Airport. Of course, he didn't make it. And for the last nearly 20 years, most of us, many of us, have operated under the assumption it was an accident, a simple plane accident, pilot error, poor visibility, You've heard all of the arguments. Well, John Kerner is about to unravel those. He's an adjunct professor of American history at Erie Community College and the founder of Paranormal Walks. He's appeared on America's Book of Secrets, on the History Channel, and William Shatner's Weird or What on the Discovery Channel. John has an M.A. in American history from the State University of New York College at Brockport and a B.A. in communications journalism from St. John Fisher College. And his uh, first book was Why the CIA Killed JFK and Malcolm X, The Secret Drug Trade in Laos. And his new one is Exploding the Truth, The JFK Jr. Assassination. John Kerner, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. How are you, my friend? I'm doing great, Richard. It's so nice to hear from you again. Likewise. So this book is being heralded as the first serious work on JFK Jr.'s death, the first. Why did it take, do you suppose, 20 years, nearly 20 years, for someone 
to heavily research and write this. You would think, you know, when, when a celebrity dies, mm-hmm. a public figure, these days, within weeks, you see that book at the checkout counter at the grocery store. No one touched this for 20 years until you. Why? I think that there is a lot of fear around conspiracy theories nowadays that you're going to be labeled some kind of a crack for going to this, especially if you're a mainstream historian like myself and teach history, that if you're in the mainstream, you might be labeled as someone that doesn't know what they're talking about. So to look at an event like this, like I do with logic and facts, takes a lot of courage. Another thing to think about, too, it took several years for JFK assassination researchers to be accepted that they're in, they're doing talking about things back in the late 1960s that weren't accepted for many, many years. Witnesses were killed for that assassination, too. So there's, there's a lot of fear around this stuff. And I think it takes people time to accept the reality that there is more going on here than we were led to believe. My next question is about you and your personal safety. I don't say that in a flippant or cavalier way because right. you published your book on JFK and Malcolm X what 2014 i think that came out that was right and just before it came out like on the eve of its publication you became not just a little bit ill you almost died i did i was completely healthy and then i spent about six months in hospital going through what was the different types of diseases they couldn't figure out what it really was and they kept asking me had i visited southeast asia and I had never been there. And they said, whatever you got only come from there. And it looked like someone had poisoned you and you really should be dead. So I went through that for about six months and I lost 45 pounds. I pretty much was on death's door right when that book came out. And I'm there. My family said that there were some Black Hawk helicopters that were flying over the house sometimes. It was a very strange time for me when that book came out. And we all probably know the story of Gary Webb, the reporter yes. for the San Jose Mercury News, who was found with two gunshots to the head when he, after he was reporting on the very same thing I was reporting on, the connections of the drug trade in Laos. In that case, it was South America. But my case was with Southeast Asia, and he paid the ultimate price, too. So was there any trepidation uh, on, on your part or maybe your family's part on, like, John, are you really sure you want to tackle this? Yeah, they actually asked me not to write about this. My family did not want me to write this book. I felt I had to write the book. I felt compelled to do it. In fact, I put in the introduction, this might be my last book. Um, I, I don't know if I'm going to, you know, what's going to happen to me. Um, I'm willing to take the risk, though, because I think it's so important the truth needs to be told. In researching this book, and we'll get into the timeline, of course, over the course of the next two hours and lay out the evidence and sort of dismiss a lot of the prosaic explanations for this plane crash, and you do it so beautifully in Exploding the Truth, but was it difficult to get people to speak up about this when you went to, for example, uh, I believe it was the senior editor at George Magazine? Were they open to speaking to you? Were they anxious to speak, or were they frightened? I had a lot of people that were not too willing to speak with me, but I kept persisting. I used what I could fine with published reports, the National Archives, the NTSB report. I tried to contact the witnesses that saw the explosion. And I talk about in the book the resistance I encountered. Just getting microfilm was hard to get from people in and around 
Martha's Vineyard. They, they, they're very closed off to this and scared about it. And I think with good reason, because as we talked about with other assassinations, witnesses have paid the ultimate price for even talking about this. Look at, for example, Nina Rhodes Hughes, who just came out a few years ago and kept her mouth shut because she thought she'd be killed too, because she, of course, saw a second gun, gunman at the RFK assassination. And she finally said the truth's got to be told. She saw another gunman. No more cover-ups. So there's a conspiracy of silence, you probably could say, witnesses. And I saw the same thing here, too. John Kerner, the author of Exploding the Truth, the JFK Jr. Assassination. All right, take us back to July 16th, 1999, the evening of July 16th, and um, just sort of walk us through the events. Yeah, this was supposed to be a very wonderful weekend for Kennedy family. This was Roy Kennedy's wedding they're heading up there to celebrate this. It was strange because 30 years earlier, that was when Chappaquiddick had taken place at the same spot for Edward Kennedy, that horrible tragedy that took place with his, uh, with his family there. So usually they took that time to do this. But anyway, that was when they planned this wedding for Rory Kennedy. And he was taking off from New Jersey. He took off at 8.39 p.m. with his wife, Caroline, and his sister-in-law, Lauren Bissette, and then at precisely 9.39 p.m., he calls in to the Vineyard Airport and tells them that he's about to land. And it's such a key thing to say this, because if there was any distress with himself or the airplane, he'd have said so right then. He did not. And the official version at the NTSB report, it says at that point in time, he was suffering from what they call spatial disorientation. And if he was suffering from that, he would have said something at that point in time, which he did not. He said he's about to land, things are okay, all was good with the aircraft. Also, Edward Meyer, who was appointed by the NTSB to investigate the conditions that night, issued a report about a few weeks later, and he said the conditions that night over the vineyard were completely fine. There was nothing that could have caused spatial disorientation. So the call at 939, the other reports indicate just the opposite, in fact. So about 20 to 10, he crashes basically nose first into the Atlantic Ocean, correct? Well, then we can make this point, too. So Jim Maher is pointing this out, too. He investigated the, the, the assassination, too. And it was obvious in those around the area, too. If an airplane like that crashed as the NTSB said it did, nose down. Then the luggage, the bodies, the parts of the aircraft would be in one place. That was not the case. The Navy and the CIA, they sealed off 14 nautical miles around that area to recover everything. They found luggage, sneakers, wheels, bodies all over that place. So what that indicates is something really quite important. It indicates that the cabin was breached inside from an explosion, causing a large debris field around the area. If there was no explosion, it comes down in one spot. There's no need to seal off that large area. You wouldn't find all those debris of the large field. How large was the debris field on the uh, on the ocean floor? 14 nautical miles. Large area. The debris field was 14 nautical miles long? Yes. So it was a massive explosion. And again, as I put in the book, there were three witnesses on the ground there that saw 
just that in the sky. They saw two things. So they, well, they saw the flash of light and they heard an explosion. One of whom was this man named Victor Provanik, who was talked about in this book called The Day John Died. He was documented in that book. He talked about this with that author. And he said that he saw an explosion. He was also reported in the New York Post. And he was looking at, he was fishing that night. He'd been fishing for a number of years in that same spot. So he looked up at the sky, saw an explosion, heard the sound, and he was right there. Absolutely um, amazing. You know, if you go on Wikipedia and you search the JFK Jr. crash, it'll tell you things like poor visibility. It'll say uh, a debris field of about 120 feet. Uh, and yet we are hearing, no, 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 14 nautical miles. We're talking about a debris field here, 14 nautical miles along the floor. How were you able to verify that? How do we know? Is that in the public record? What ends up happening here is after the explosion takes place, ABC News, Peter Jennings on the air is getting calls from local residents around the area at Gay's Head, for example, at the vineyard. And they're saying as far north as in some places near north of the vineyard too, several miles up, they're finding things. One of the local sheriffs even calls in and says he's found learned the set's luggage on the beach. So this is coming right from people that were on the ground calling into local news people, like even ABC News on the day after the, the explosion on the 17th of July. Right. Now, here's the funny thing. They don't recover the bodies for two days. I mean, what took them so long? Right. It's very unusual because uh, what ends up happening here is it gives us the chance to talk about the locator beacon. So at 2.15 a.m., ABC News, Peter Jennings reports that at 2.15 a.m. on July 17th, the Navy claims that they heard a rescue beacon. And they said initially that it was the Pepper Saratoga, which obviously it would be. But then they say, hang on a second. It's not Pepper Saratoga. It's a downed Navy military aircraft instead, which kind of just blows your mind. And at that point in time, ABC News, NBC News just dropped the story. I don't ask some obvious questions, which I ask in the book. If it's a downed Navy military aircraft, who died in the crash? Did it collide with JFK's plane? Where are the bodies? And how could they confuse that with the other rescue beacon? Because they're two completely different sounds. The Pepper Saratoga's rescue beacon is a steady, shrill sound. And a Navy aircraft is a much more like a foghorn. You can't confuse them. So it seems like they probably were lying about that, that they did, they actually did find the Pepper Saratoga at 2.15 a.m. And like you were saying, you needed time to make it look like it was an accident, not an explosion, which is why they did that. Now, the other, the other obvious question is, if there was a Navy plane downed, why wasn't it reported missing? Why wasn't that on the news? Right. It'd be, it'd be very hard to to not have the families talk about whatever pilot had died, for example. How do you cover that up? It just doesn't make any sense. So it would have to be the Pepper Saratoga's rescue beacon that they found. And it just makes So sense. this was a diversion to delay for time so that they could do what? So they could make it look like it was... An accident that, that where the bodies were just in one spot, cover, recover as much debris as they could, maybe even switch out the bodies 
so it didn't look like they had been marred from an explosion. They needed time to do this. And it was done by the Navy and the CIA, the two teams that were in there doing that, only them. Media was not allowed in. Even the Kennedy family was not allowed in. Just those two entities. That's it. Who was the first to reach out to the Kennedys to let them know? Well, President Clinton was trying to get information to Teddy Kennedy. Back at Hyannisport, they were in a media blackout, too. So, again, like you said, it took many days for even anyone to realize what had really happened there. And during those two days, all kinds of myths start to explode in the media. One big myth was that JFK Jr. Was a, was a bad pilot. He was a reckless pilot, that he was dangerous, and that was not even close to the truth. If you look at all the people that trained with him, they said he was meticulous. Ralph Howard, for example, one of his flight instructors said he loved flying because it gave him a sense of peace, for example. He had 17 years in the cockpit. We could point this out, too. He, he did that same flight five times at night with no flight instructor. He also had another flight instructor say that his name was Harold uh, Anderson, that one time he actually did a test with a hood on and did everything completely accurate with a hood on. So during that two days, it was used to destroy his reputation, which we later on was not even true. So it was, a, it was a bad couple of days there. How many hours of flight experience total did he have? Do we know? I think it was over 700 flight hours going back to 1982 at the very least. It's 17 years. And the main thing we can also point out, this is from the NTSB report itself, is he did that same flight from New Jersey to Martha's Vineyard at night with no flight instructor. He also knew how to use autopilot. He passed an instrument training tests, and he knew what to do. So we also know, as I was saying, he makes that call in at 9.39 p.m. after one hour of flight. And if anything was wrong, he would have told the airport, at that point in time, that he was suffering disorientation. There were some problems with the aircraft. None of that was ever reported. So you have this two days where he's, his reputation is being destroyed during that time, which is not even true. So he was rated to fly instrument well, under instrument flight. conditions, right? Right. And there's now, also this myth put forward, too, that there was this flight instructor that allegedly just before the aircraft took off, went up to him and asked to fly with him. And the NTSB report talks about this, but never names this person, curiously enough. And I think if this person did exist, JFK might not have trusted him. It was very suspicious. This guy shows up. Who is this person? Why is he here? And I don't know if this person, who he was, where he was, what he was doing, what his motivation was, but he never was named. And the media never pursues this either to find out this guy who cheated death it could have been on the airplane and died with all the other members of the family, but never was named. A very strange thing happened there with this mysterious flight instructor, too. When they talk about spatial disorientation, even if the weather is clear, but it's because it's dark, with the water below, you've got this featureless, not a landscape, obviously, it's water, mm-hmm. but it's featureless. Could that cause spatial disorientation, even in an experienced pilot? I suppose it's possible, but we can also point out a couple different things. It's such a key thing to point out that one minute before the explosion, he calls in to the raid to the air, to the Martha's Vineyard airport. He says he's about to land. He's on approach. If he was suffering from that at that point in time, he would have said something about it. He was, he didn't make a distress call. He was ready to land. 
So it's possible, yes, but not based on the evidence. We also can point out, he, as I said, he made the same fight at night with the same conditions. He was used to seeing that horizon already five different times. It's also been suggested there there was a possibility that he may have been distracted, uh, that he was flying in the same vicinity as American Airline Flight 1484, which I guess was also on approach to Westchester County uh, Airport, and that the traffic collision avoidance system on the uh, on the American Airlines flight actually sounded. So is it possible that that may have caused the crash? It's possible. But again, we have to go back to the witnesses on the ground. We have three people who saw an explosion. We have Victor Burbanic, the lawyer from Pittsburgh. We have a member of the Martha's Vineyard Gazette who was on the beach who saw that. And a member of the Kennedy family was on the beach, too. They all saw in the sky an explosion and, and heard one, too. So it seems like if you add up the evidence here, that's what we're talking about. And another thing they, they, were, they were talking about, too, is that, well, maybe his leg was hurting him. He had broken his leg. It's just, I should say, he fractured his leg when he was had this parasailing accident on um, Memorial Day weekend, last day of May in 1999. He had the cast taken off the previous Thursday morning, had the entire day of Thursday, the entire day of Friday to walk around on the leg, he went to a Yankees game, he worked out, and he stopped into a convenience store before he took off. He was asked by the, the checkout person, how's the leg doing? He says the leg is feeling fine. He even took off with no incident, flew for an hour, so the leg was doing fine. So that's more thing we can discount, too. I'm not a pilot, obviously. I don't know to what extent you would use your feet. Do you use your feet when you fly a plane? Do you need to apply any pressure with your feet, as you would, let's say, on a gas pedal or a brake pedal? The research that I did, again, I'm not an expert either, it only is really needed on takeoff. And then after that, you can use autopilot, and that takes it over from there, which he knew how to do. And again, right. if, you did, if he did need to use his feet, get back to the point. He did an hour of flights, calls in at precisely one hour into the flights. If the thing was wrong, he would have said something then, and he did not. He said we were on approach, ready to land, and then right then, the plane explodes. All right, John, stay put. We'll take a quick time out, come back, and continue uh, to drill down on the JFK Jr. assassination. John Kerner, my guest, back with more in a moment. Stay with us. The truth will set you free, but first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Hey, welcome back. John Kerner is with us, exploding the truth, the JFK Jr. assassination. Now, according to the official version, in quotations, the official version, both Kennedy and uh, his wife and sister-in-law were found strapped into their seats still in the fuselage. Uh, do you have, I mean, if, if in fact there was an onboard explosion, uh, presumably what? They would be, they would be scattered. They would have, it'd be pretty gruesome, right? There'd be body parts scattered along the ocean floor. Right. Absolutely. So, what, so that, this is why it's important to recognize that they sealed off 14 nautical miles. And for several days, we have no idea what they find. There's no chain of evidence because you have no media allowed in there, no Kennedy family, no independent people that, can, that could independently verify what's found. So make up anything they want. They can make up anything they want to with the report. 
because no one independently can verify their finding. What we do know from those around the area, though, as I was saying, is that they did find Lauren Bissett's luggage. They found some sneakers, some airplane parts over a large area from that area around Martha's Vineyard. That's several miles away from where the explosion took place. So, as Jim Mars, as I said, pointed out, if it was, as they suggested, an accident, everything would be just in one spot. But it was not in one spot. It was over a large debris field. When they recovered the bodies, were the, the, the Kennedy family, any anyone in the Kennedy family or the Bessette, Bessette family allowed to view the bodies? Well, they had to identify them, all right? Right, but again, not for several days. So it's possible that, again, people in the, people in the CIA, they can obviously manipulate bodies. They did it with JFK, and it can be done with their experts. They can make it look like anything they want. And the point that should be made, even if they're strapped into the cockpit, that doesn't mean it wasn't an explosion. Perhaps the explosion took place on the, on the side of the aircraft. We don't even know. But because there is no one allowed in in the area, and those allowed in, the agency and the Navy, who had just lied about, as I mentioned, the rescue beacon, they can't be trusted for what happens next. They told this lie that they found the Piper Saratoga's rescue beacon, and they said, oh, no, it's one of our aircraft. And then... No one pursued that obvious question, well, if it's one of your aircraft, where's the aircraft? Where's the pilot? Who died? Did it collide with JFK's plane? Where's the debris field for that one? No one asked those basic questions that need to be answered. And we're still asking the questions all these years later. Uh, The bodies were taken to the county medical examiner's office by motorcade. Uh, Where was that autopsy performed? Do we know? Uh, It was before the... uh, in the Martha's Vineyard area, and the Kennedy family had the bodies cremated at sea. That's when it took place with the bodies. So there was no burial except for at sea. And do we know uh, who performed the autopsy? Well, the people that performed the autopsy were government-sponsored people. Jim Baker took over the investigation, too. So he was in charge of hiring people that did the autopsy in, in charge of the investigation, of course, for the Reagan administration, a key member and friend of the Bush family. So he's in charge of all these decisions, and that's where all, the, all those decisions come from, Jim Baker. One of the theories, obviously, that's been bandied about is that that John F. Kennedy Jr. was thinking about running for the vacant Senate seat in New York, which would have uh, pitted him against Hillary Clinton. There she is again. Uh, and that, so all of a sudden the Clintons once again fall under suspicion. But you, you spend the entire first chapter, uh, or I think it's maybe the first or the second chapter, right. uh, ex- ex- essentially exonerating the Clintons. Yes, I think it's important to note that JFK Jr. was not going to run for the Senate. He had told his friend Gary Ginsburg, his business partner, that he was not interested in running for the Senate. He wanted to run for governor. There was much more his line of expertise, managing things, being governor. Clintons were very close to the Kennedys. So one of his friends also said he was too much of a gentleman to do this, too much, too honorable. It was just not for him to do. He was running for governor in 2002 and for president in 2004. 
So the Clintons um, were good friends of the Kennedy family. You might know a couple of different things kind of in the public record. Uh, President Clinton appointed as ambassador to Ireland, Gene and Kennedy Smith, when the first year of his administration. Also, Jackie Kennedy was a big early supporter of Bill Clinton when he ran for president in 1992. And JFK was the inspiration for Bill Clinton to become involved in politics when they met at the White House back in the early 1960s. So they're very close. And one other key thing, too, we can point out is that George Magazine never published a single word criticizing Bill Clinton during his administration, especially during the several different scandals that he had. In fact, during a key moment in time, um, JFK Jr. sent a fax to the White House that said that he was a kid in the White House. He fit under the desk easily, never could see an intern putting under the desk. So he just sent this funny little fax to the president. So it was, it was pretty clear. The friendship was the, you know, the key thing why he chose not to run against her. And he had his sights set in running for governor. The, the governorship of New York is interesting because that is, uh, has been sort of, a a path to the White House for many presidents, including, of course, Teddy Roosevelt and, uh, and then his, his uh, distant cousin, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And it seems like you get in and you only serve two years and then you run for office. So that's kind that's of like right. the, uh, that's kind of the fast track to the White House is to run for governor of New York and then only serve two years. Absolutely. You have Teddy, uh, Roosevelt. You have uh, Grover Cleveland served just a year. Uh, Martin Van Buren served sort of a very short time. So it's, it was, it's always really been, like you said, a stepping stone of the White House. And I think him with his just huge popularity as this person who kind of had a very easy love from both parties would have been a kind of a healing force for the country. He, of course, lived in New York City and he would have been there during the terrorist attacks. And he probably would have been able to speak eloquently about that and would have been a person I think the country would have loved and respected in, in his administration as governor. And it would have been, I think, an easy win for him. It, it, it had also been discussed, uh, I think it was suggested to him, you point out in your book, Exploding the Truth, the um, the, the, the governor of the, at the time, the outgoing governor, uh, D'Amato, had suggested that John run for mayor of New York City. Mm-hmm. Did yeah, take that, uh, was, yeah, he was a senator from New York and he was leaving and he said, why not run for mayor? And JFK confided to him and to his friends that he had never have a mayor become president. He didn't have a much higher platform than that. So that right there indicated he was seeking and seek the presidency pretty soon. And the stepping stone would be, of course, be governor of New York, which is what he had his sights on. So he was no threat to the Clintons. He was, in fact, his temperament was, I think, because he ran George Magazine, I think the Senate would have been too boring for him. He wanted to be a manager of things, a leader of men and women. So I think being governor of New York really appealed to him a lot. Right. I said Governor D'Amato. You're right. Senator D'Amato, Alphonse D'Amato. Yeah, yeah, yeah. um, now, but why the decision uh, to run? Because he had resisted for so long. When did he first decide? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna run for public life. I mean, we we assume okay, you're a Kennedy. At some point, you're gonna run for office somewhere. But he he had resisted for so long. Right. When did he decide? He starts talking about this in the spring of 1999, and he talks about this with his friends. What do you think? 
And it seemed at that point in time, his wife had got to be okay with it. I think once she gave the okay, then it was, it was all systems go. It was a matter of where he would pick to go forward from there. Maybe be senates or governor. And they ruled out senates for the reason I just mentioned. So that left governor. And I think that's where he made the decision. The two options would have been one or the other. He's from New York State, obviously. So that's where path forward would have been from him. So he felt that he had done all he really could with George Magazine. He was going to use the presidency to open up an investigation to his father's assassination. That was why he wanted to run for president, too. He had talked about that with his friends as well. In fact, in, uh, in his early life as a teenager, he had talked about this with his first girlfriend, Meg Azioni, in high school, that he had really serious doubts about the official version of events of his father's death. So it had been a thing with him for quite a long time, questioning the Warren Commission. And, and wasn't scared off by the fact that his... Uncle Robert Kennedy had uh, sort of had the same idea that that he would run for president and, and investigate his brother's assassination. And obviously he paid the, the ultimate price as well. All right. We'll take another time out. Uh, John, stay put. Back with more of our discussion of JFK Jr. with John Kerner right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. The truth will set you free. But first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Hey, welcome back. John Kerner is with us exploding the truth, the JFK Jr. assassination. Um, I wanted to just ask you about George Magazine. Now, at the time, uh, he was he was in financial trouble. Uh, I recall he, he flew up uh, to Button Airport uh, in Markham, not far from where I'm sitting. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe a couple of weeks before the crash, he was looking for... I don't know if he was looking for investors or whether he was looking to unload the magazine. What was the status of George Magazine at that time? Right. His his business partner, Gary Ginsburg, he said that there were two things on his mind that last two months of his life. Uh, he was going to try to sell the magazine and try to run for office. That's what he was positioning himself for doing. And if he could just sell the magazine... That could give him a chance to focus on his ideas of running for governor. So that's right. He was trying to get investors to keep the magazine going. And he also had confided that perhaps an article about the Bush connection to the assassination could help the magazine do uh, better sales, too. So he, of course, named the magazine George because he felt the connection was there between George H.W. Bush and the Kennedy assassination. So that's what was on his mind at the end of his life, those several things. And most people just assume, because I remember one of the, the earliest covers of George Magazine was um, model Cindy Crawford wearing a powdered wig uh, dressed up as George Washington. Um, so it, it, he was he was being very clever, I guess, not playing his hand. Most people are for public consumption. The idea was that George was named after the founding father of the United States. But on the inside, people understood it was a dig at poppy bush 41 absolutely and we can talk about the connections there after the break and he, there are several connections that and reasons why the kennedy family and the bush family were at opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of their <laughs> their anger the rivalry and jfk jr was i think in the crosshairs and, and as many kennedys were because of the cia's anger at him at his father and his brother too and I think he got he was he got the same treatment as they got too 
All right, John, we'll uh, come back and uh, dive into that precisely. John Kerner, author of Exploding the Truth, the JFK Jr. Assassination. Phone calls begin at the top of the hour. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. John Kerner stays with us. He is with us for the full two hours. The book is Exploding the Truth, the JFK Jr. Assassination. Before we uh, jump into the uh, the George uh, Herbert Walker Bush connection here, uh, and uh, you're telling us 100% that George Magazine was named uh, as a dig to, to, uh, to George H.W. Bush. Uh, I mean, how do we know that for certain? I mean, has, was that ever stated categorically or we I mean, I believe it. Uh, but but how do we know for sure? I think the reasons are pretty clear, because after we get to the point where we get to the end of 1999, he has told two different investigators that I talk about in the book that he's ready to uncover the conspiracy to kill his father, and he's going to point the finger at Poppy Bush. He t- and it's told specifically to two different investigators. And looking at the evidence here, you go back into his own life. He'd been questioning things as far back as the late 1970s. And when he's in high school, he, he's in the same high school that George W. Bush went to high school to at the same time. And I also want to mention that if you go back in the late 19, early 1960s, there are a number of connections that really prove the anger that the Kennedy family and the Bush family had against each other. And one important thing we can point out is this oil depletion allowance that JFK was trying to eliminate that was going to really ruin all of the fortunes of all the oil men in, in Texas, including George Poppy Bush. And that's one of many reasons why there was this effort to take out the president in Dallas in 1963. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. John Kerner is with us for the full two hours. The book is Exploding the Truth, the JFK Jr. assassination. All right, so... George Herbert Walker Bush has the distinction of being maybe one of only two or three people on the planet who always said he never remembered where he was on November 22nd, 1963. I think the other was Richard Nixon. So likely they were both in that meeting with Clint Murchison and LBJ and so forth the night before. However, and then, of course, there is this very popular grainy photograph of what looks like it could be a very young George Herbert Walker Bush in the vicinity of the uh, of Daly Plaza on November 22nd, 1963. It's not right. definitive proof. But what what is the evidence that George Herbert Walker Bush was, in fact, in the CIA in 63? It comes from a Hoover memo, right? Right. There's also the fact that Jim Garrison finds out that he was arrested by the Dallas Police Department at, in Dealey Plaza, and he was in Dallas Police Headquarters right after the assassination. So Garrison found that out. And we also have the photograph of him in front of the school book depository. And we also know the night before, he was at a hotel in Dallas making a speech about 
his oil company, Zapata. So he's in Dallas, and he, we probably know, as he said, that night he was at Clint Murchison's house with the other oil men planning the assassination. So he's, he's around the area. And so we, we have photographic evidence. We have him making the speech. We have him arrested from Jim Garrison's you know, evidence. So he's in the area. There's no doubt about it. And we also know that there's motive for him, as we said, to want President Kennedy dead because JFK was going to end the whole depletion allowance, which is going to just ruin the profits of all these oil men. And also we know that Poppy Bush helped plan the pigs invasion. He was one of the people who got the ships named Houston and Barbara, for example. So this man was part of the whole series of men in the agency because of the Bay of Pigs invasion, because of the old depletion allowance. They wanted the president dead, just, you know, basic history here from their perspective of the agency, why they wanted the president to be eliminated. Talk to me about this Hoover memo. Right. So there was this memo that George Herbert Walker Bush makes a phone call from Tyler, Texas, and he claims that this one person in Tyler, Texas help plan the assassination. But this person that he pins on the assassination was never involved with any kind of conspiracy to kill President Kennedy. He was at home the entire time. The person was probably mentally ill. And this all this does was try to put Bush in an area that he wasn't in. He tries to say he was in Tyler, Texas at the time when, in fact, we know he was in Dealey Plaza. He was arrested. He was photographed. All it was meant to do was give him an alibi and Hoover was part of the plan to do this. It's always been claimed, or George Herbert Walker Bush claimed, or someone on his behalf claimed, that it was a different George Bush that was in the CIA, that Hoover right. was referring to another Bush, a George William Bush. Right, and this George William Bush, when he found that out, got himself a lawyer and got himself a notary and made sure everyone knew that it, that it was it was definitely not him. He went through a specific detailed explanation of how it could not have been George William Bush. So that's in the book, too. So this man found out about this, and he said, no, it was definitely George Walker Bush, not him. So this George William Bush, who George Herbert Walker Bush claimed was the actual Bush mentioned in the Hoover memo, basically went to a lawyer and swore out an affidavit or had an affidavit sworn out. He did, yeah. He said there's no way it could have been him. He was nowhere near Dealey Plaza. He would not handle that kind of intelligence information. He just there's nothing about this that could have affected him to the to that. So he got himself a lawyer and an affidavit and swore to this. What was Bush then doing in Dealey Plaza? He wanted to make sure the deed was done. I mean, do we know just because he was there isn't necessarily proof positive that he was involved? That's a good point. So we have to make the observation that it doesn't really matter why he's there. It just matters that JFK Jr. wanted to find out more about it, investigate it. So because he's telling his friends, investigators, that he wants to use his magazine and the presidency to reopen an investigation and point the finger at the Bush family, that makes him a target. And he also is a rival to his son, George Herbert Walker Bush's son, George W. Bush, the presidency. So these are things that make him, that give him motive to be killed by the CIA. So we also can point out, I think there's also an extension here of the agency's continued anger at JFK just by the fact they wanted to kill his son over continued anger at the Bay of Pigs invasion, the drug trade in Laos, ending the Vietnam War. It's just an, it's an extension of their targeting of the, the family itself, even forgetting about the fact 
anything about new investigations brought forward to the Bush family. I think it's just more of a pattern to, to kill more Kennedys because that's just what the agency tends to do. They just do this to all three of the brothers. They targeted Teddy Kennedy, too. They targeted Robert Kennedy and, of course, JFK. George Magazine launches in, in 1995, four years before John's death. Had he always intended to use George Magazine as a platform to expose? I mean, was he looking at doing uh, some investigative pieces and publishing them? And, and if so, why didn't he? I think he, he makes his first attempt at, at, at all this when he publishes this article that details a conspiracy to kill Yitzhak Rabin. Not written by him, but published in his magazine. That was his first attempt to test the waters to see how it would be received by the public, that kind of reporting in his magazine. I think that was the first step he took to see if that could be well-received, if he could continue to live, if, if he would be targeted. So that comes out in March of 1997. So I think that's his first attempt to make himself more respected, to be able to do this with the magazine. And again, he was telling his friends at that point in time, this is what we need to do. We need more serious reporting. This kind of thing is what magazine needs to start doing. They were waiting, though, obviously, for that smoking gun. They they needed something very concrete. I mean, <laughs> you, you you don't take on the, the Bush dynasty uh, in in a magazine without having them basically pretty much dead to rights. I would imagine. Right. You'd have to have several years of research. You need the power of the presidency itself, really, to be able to get that done. And going back to Bobby Kennedy, I mean, he had confided in his friends that the first day of the assassination, he approaches the director of the agency and says, I know you did this. I'm going to prove it. So he spends the next several years doing his own investigation. He visits Mexico City, for example, talks to other researchers for the assassination. He concludes that the agency, of course, killed his brother. And he was going to use the power of the presidency to reopen investigation, probably hold trials for treason and the Vietnam War. And we all know how that turned out. So this is the same approach that his uncle had tried in 1968. And the result was the same. And I think if you look at even Teddy Kennedy, I look at this in the book, too. There was a suspicious plane crash in the summer of 1965 where he should have died, too. This is just months after the, uh, the summer of 64. And once after the um, JFK assassination, and that plane crash killed the pilot, and Teddy Kennedy really should have died that night. It was a very strange accident. The pilot had flown that flight several times, and that looked like an assassination attempt, too. So all three brothers were targeted, and it seems like this is more of an extension of that. Even the date itself we could talk about, too, was unusual, July 16th. How is that, how is that uh, peculiar? What is that interesting about that date? Well, we can go back, uh, you know, 30 years. That same weekend was Chappaquiddick. And I think another research thing, too, that was set up to destroy Teddy Kennedy's political career. So he would never run for president in 1972. So, you know, there's that, which is look at in the book as well. But there's also, going back even further in time, July 16th of 1961, JFK, June, JFK, Senior starts an affair with Mary Cord Meyer, ex-wife of, of course, you know, of course, Cord Meyer, and that was a very provocative thing the president did when he started that affair, which E. Howard Hunt says Cord Meyer was one of the men who planned the assassination. 
And one reason was this bitterness of this ongoing affair with this this very serious affair, really, with Mary Cord Meyer that began that day, July 16th. So it seems like that date, that weekend, it, it's, it's just, is it a coincidence? I don't know. It's unusual. We also know that July 16th, uh, 1945, was when the first nuclear explosion took place in the American Southwest of the Manhattan Project, and many of the men from there went under the CIA. So it's a very proud day for them, very unusual day, July 16th. It's a very strange day for all this thing to go down on. Fascinating. All right, John, we're going to open up the phone lines in the next hour, take questions and comments, and we'll continue to explore the assassination of John F. Kennedy Jr. Back with more of my conversation with John Kerner right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serra. Well, thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' base, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate in your cabin in the woods. Uh, John Kerner, author of Exploding the Truth. The JFK Jr. assassination stays with us. And this hour, your phone calls. Just a reminder to check out my podcasts, Conspiracy Unlimited. New episodes drop every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, three new episodes a week. And you can listen and subscribe at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. And then The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. New episodes drop every Wednesday. And this coming week, we'll take a look at Bob Marley versus the CIA. The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone, part of the Jericho Network in association with Westwood One. And again, it's available on iTunes and Spotify and uh, the Westwood One app. Westwood One has their own app. You can get it there as well. Anywhere you get your favorite podcasts. The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone and Conspiracy Unlimited. And incidentally, you can also access them through my website, strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca. And incidentally, we've overhauled the website, strangeplanet.ca. We've streamlined it, made it a lot easier to navigate, and it's uh, it's far more uh, mobile friendly. All right, let's get back to uh, John Kerner. And again, we'll take uh, questions and comments of this hour for John. Uh, were there, do we suspect or do you suspect or do you know whether there were earlier attempts perhaps? Now, sort of in hindsight, looking back, other close calls that may have been an attempt to take John uh, Kennedy Jr. out? Yeah, there was this unusual incident that took place. He switched up his aircraft about six months before he, with a new one, the Pepper Saratoga. And that one had some strange instruments that had, were kind of failing or not up to par. So he didn't like it for some reason and he got rid of it. So I don't know if that what, what that was all about, but that aircraft looked to be not up to speed. So he got rid of it, exchanged it for this new one. So I don't know if that one was sabotage, if he knows something about it. I'm not really sure, but he was so meticulous that he didn't like that one and just kind of got rid of it. So that might have been one thing that was unusual, certainly. Right. And so for George uh, Herbert Walker uh, Bush, I guess there were two two motives. One is to silence John F. Kennedy Jr. before he investigated his father's assassination. And then the other one was 
uh, because obviously George, George W. Bush, the younger Bush was, was also running for president in 2000. So. Right. Just two weeks before the assassination, right? Explosion. It was very unusual that for the, the several days that all this was happening, where there were, the nation was tragically mourning that JF, or JFK's, you know, Jr.'s death, George W. Bush was nowhere to be found. They couldn't find him for comments for several days. His press secretary said they, they, they didn't know where he was. It was, it was very strange. Um, and I was just thinking about another point, too, that a question earlier, why was there this all of a sudden interest in getting involved in politics again? I think he, because he admired his father so much, it, it seemed like he wanted to serve this country. And it got to the point in his life where he was ready to do so. And his father, in his 30s, was doing the same thing, serving his country, and he felt an obligation to do the same thing. And if you look at the timing here, if JFK had become, Jr. had become president and elected president in 2004, which was his path, he would have been the same age as his father was on Inauguration Day in 1961. So they would both have been 43 years old. So I, I think the timing here is what was important to him, too. All right. Stephen in Massachusetts. Stephen, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Hello, Richard. Hello, John. Right after the uh, the crash, I was watching a WBZ4. It's a local affiliate here. Uh, report by David Robichaud. You know, he was a reporter. He was down, you know, in the area. He had an interview. I don't know if it's the reporter from the Gazette. He had an interview right. with the photographer who witnessed the crash, and he said he saw a great light right before it. That was an interview with uh, reporter David Robichaud, WBZ4 News. Um, and also another thing. Uh, on Channel 5, WCVB would be the ABC affiliate. Uh, Chet Curtis, who was a news anchor, he himself, you know, well-known anchor, he's passed away. He himself was a private pilot, and he, when they were commenting, you know, they were doing, you know, a news coverage. He was apoplectic. He was a flyer himself. He couldn't understand how, you know, he could have been, could have been like the reports were true that, John could have been, you know, flustered. He said he, he he knew that, you know, he was a good pilot. He himself had flown. This is a Chet Curtis. And, you know, he was a well-known pilot. He couldn't understand it. It seemed like he was very uneasy. He didn't go around and say it, but he was just, obviously, the Kennedy is very popular. But if you want to get that footage, it was Chet Curtis. He and and Natalie Jacobson were well-known uh, you know, anchors at the ABC affiliate WCVB. TV5. Chet Curtis, he's passed away, um, but he was a pilot, and uh, I don't know if you, you you'd want to check in that if you, I don't know if you know that or not, um, you can easily get the footage, um, so I just wanted to put that out there. And also, I'll add this, you may not know this, the, the Gaelic name, or Druid name, ancient name of Kennedy, you know, I'm sure you know it means head wound, and obviously both of Kennedy, John and Robert was shot in the head and could have been, you know, John could have, he could have hurt his head in the, in the crash or whatever. Um, so that's kind of eerie. And, um, is that true? The last name Kennedy means head wound in Gaelic? 
you view Wikipedia search, the Gaelic name, the ancient tribal name, means Kennedy. Obviously, that's translated from the Gaelic or the ancient right. uh, Celtic. It means head wound or, or you know, shot to the head, something like that. Um, you could easily find that with a um, a Wikipedia search. It'll come up, or you just do a Google the search of the Kennedy name. You know, original right. origin. Great and, points uh, in there, Stephen. Let's get John in here to to comment. I'm glad you brought that up about the Vineyard Gazette reporter. I spent an entire chapter talking about this witness. So there is this reporter from the Gazette that he just mentioned that was interviewed on the air, and the problem was they didn't give the reporter's name. So subsequent investigators called the Vineyard Gazette, and they said we're reluctant to give out the person's name because they're an intern. They they they, they just went off to college. So they're, they're, we're frightened for their safety, I think, for obvious reasons. So the information that we had was that they worked for the Gazette. They witnessed this explosion, and it was a male, and they worked just for that summer of 1999. So with that, with those, you know, facts, I, I wanted to go and look at the microfilm to see if I could nail down who this person would be. So if I could find a person, a male intern, that showed up just reporting in the summer and then stopped reporting when he got to September, when he went back to school, that would have been the person. So I tried to get the microfilm through interlibrary loan from three different places in, in the area, and all three of them denied the microfilm request and wouldn't let me see the microfilm from the Vineyard Gazette. Finally, I got the National Archives to get the microfilm. So I got the microfilm, looked at it, looked at every single story from May until September for the Vineyard Gazette. And I did find the person, this one person, this intern that would have that showed up and then disappeared and stopped reporting when they would have went back to school. So I didn't give the person's name in the book, but it does correspond to what the man was saying. It was his witness that worked for the Gazette and saw the explosion. Fascinating. Fascinating. How many witnesses in all saw the explosion? Well, the three that we publicly know about that talked about it, that were courageous enough to talk about it, were the supporter for the Gazette, another member of the Kennedy family that was interviewed on the air, and this also, this third person I mentioned, Victor Probanek. Okay, he was, and still is, a lawyer near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And he was there fishing that night, which he had done for several years. And I contacted him, too. I emailed him, and he said he'll get back to me in two weeks after his trial was over. So he, he said, contact him then, which I did. I contacted him again after two weeks, and I said, two weeks, you're up. Can we talk about what you saw that night? And like, no response. So, unfortunately, he perhaps got spooked out by my questioning. But we do know from accounts in the book, The Day John Died, and from the New York Post, that he witnessed this explosion, just like the reporter we just talked about and heard it as well. All right, let's say hi to Larry, who is in Toronto. Larry, good evening, good morning, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Yes, how are you? Very well, thank you. Yes, uh, the, only, the comment I'd like to make concerning this topic, aside from the fact that uh, 
you know, John F. Kennedy Jr. was killed in an unusual manner is the fact that he was cremated right away. Because if you look at the history of the Kennedy family, number one, they're Roman Catholics. And I realize there's no prohibition against cremation. But the fact that he was cremated right away is strange because the entire Kennedy family, uh, Robert Kennedy, Jacqueline Kennedy, President Kennedy, and Patrick Kennedy are all buried in the same, more or less, plot in Arlington. That's a very interesting point. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And kind of a coincidence also that that all three of them were cremated. Not only John Jr., but his wife, Carolyn Bessett, and and his sister-in-law, Lauren. Yes, exactly. Because it's interesting that Jacqueline Kennedy passed away not too long before uh, John, uh, John Jr. was killed. It wasn't that long. I'm thinking if he was uh, assassinated or taken out, perhaps they waited until after she died to do it. Because can you imagine just for if if he had died and she was still alive and they cremated, she would have been appalled. I think to think that her son's basically being cremated and his assets dumped in the Atlantic Ocean, where the rest of the family is buried in the family, uh, uh, you know, plot or whatever. Larry, that's an excellent point. Excellent point. John, do you want to weigh in on that? It really is. It's very suspicious. The bottom line is it's a way to cover up the evidence. If you don't have bodies, then you you can't make conclusions about what happened to the bodies. Because if you destroy the bodies and cremate them, then you can't prove what happened to the bodies. So you're making an excellent point. It's, It's so obvious, yeah. Was James Baker the, in charge of all this? Yeah, James Baker was the one appointed. <laughs> and, and, and again, he's, the, he's a, obviously from the Reagan administration. He was the Secretary of State. Right. He was Secretary of State. And, and he's from the Bush family, a good friend of the family. So he's the one appointed by the NTSB, by the FAA to head up the investigation. So from the very beginning, you have this inside man that's directing an official version of events with the bodies, with this visual disorientation myth that we put forward. It's all coming from him, which I think makes it very suspicious as we're talking about why it's him. The Bush family has their inside man there, and the CIA has their inside man there, too, with James Baker. Yeah. Uh, Larry, thank you so much. Great questions. Great uh, comments as well. I appreciate it. Uh, Catherine is in London. Catherine, welcome Hi. to The Conspiracy Show. Hi there. Hi. Hi. Um, first time calling in. This is great. Um, thank I've you. A- great to have you aboard. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I've got a couple of questions, um, and I, I'm trying to remember where um, they're coming from because I, I, I've listened a lot to like Jim Fetzer, Jim Mars. They both talked about these subjects quite a bit. Um, but um, apparently there was a, a seat missing in the plane, and from the way that the plane was found, it would have been very difficult for that seat to get loose on its own, um, and that that seat was never recovered. Um, and I know that there was a, a theory put forward about um, the fact that he always flew with a flight instructor, that he still wasn't fully qualified, he had a flight instructor with him. Where was this other person if... Indeed, there was this other person with them. Um, and, of course, the Bush connection, because I think the New American Century, um, that report, that conference was just 
starting to um, be um, being brought up. And with his magazine, he would have been all over that kind of stuff. Um, so it's just really was the timing that that summertime of 99. I actually remember the day that it happened as well. Right. Okay, so the missing seat, that's interesting. What do you know about the missing seat, John? Yeah, all these were myths put forward to take away JFK Jr.'s credibility as a, as a pilot. He did not fly with a flight instructor. He didn't need to fly with one. As I mentioned before, he did this flight five times by himself at night with no flight instructor. As I said before, he also did this training with a hood on. He could easily fly this new autopilot. And this idea that there was a person, if there was a person in that plane that died with them, the family would have been notified about this. The flight instructor community in that area is very well known. His flight instructors, we can all name who they are. I all know all their names. So if there was a man that was flying with him that was dead, where is he? Where is his family? Yeah. Why have they not talked yeah. about it? It doesn't make any sense. That was put forward to, to show the public this myth that he was not a good pilot, that he didn't know what he was doing. So that's why it was put forward. And in fact, there was a possibility, yes, this man may have, may have approached him before the flight took place that to say well, he might have wanted to fly with him. And JFK Jr. may have said, no, he doesn't need a flight instructor. He might have trusted this man. He might have known who he was. Because it was mentioned in the NTSB report that there was some person that approached him. But they never named who he was. And the media never investigates this, which would have been a great story. This person who would have cheated death by not getting on the plane with him. So the whole myth of this mysterious flight instructor makes completely no sense. It was only meant to put forward to, to say that he was some kind of bad pilot. And all his flight instructors said he was a meticulous pilot. He was he was did everything right. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, great, great uh, questions, Catherine. Uh, 416-360-0740, 416-360-0740, toll-free, 1-866-744-740. Any theories as to how... Uh, they got that, that bomb on, on the plane? Well, the air, good question. Address this in the book, too. The place where the plane took off from, Caulfield Air, uh, Airfield in New Jersey, that the airport, especially back at that time, had almost no security. So that's why they actually wanted to put aircraft there. The, the um, media... I mean, but celebrities like Bill Cosby had his aircraft there. JFK Jr. had the aircraft there. They wanted privacy. So this was a private airfield with no security. And it was kind of a place where you could just go, be by yourself. And it was, it was the kind of a place where you could easily get in there and get access to it. In fact, I was giving a speech about this a couple months ago. And a person in the crowd actually said he had been to that aircraft that airfield, he, he, he vouched for what I was saying. He said, yeah, it's, it's crazy that, that you can just walk in and out. No one really cares what you're doing. So it seems like it's the perfect place to get in there and put something on the aircraft because there's no one checks, in, checks what you're doing. Amazing. Amazing. The Kennedy assassination, of course, the John F. Kennedy assassination has this long death list of witnesses and so forth. Is there a death list for the John F. Kennedy Jr. assassination? Are people starting to die mysteriously who saw things or who know things? Well, I mentioned the reporter for the Vineyard Gazette. The 
editor right away when people approached her to ask for this guy's name. She said, we don't feel comfortable giving out his name for his own safety. So they knew right away the information that he had was that explosive. So, and as I said, I, I found out the man's name through the microfilm. I put his name in the book for his own safety. Okay, he's a young man. He, he that's what, about 20 years ago. So he's probably, you know, in his, in his, he's probably almost 40 years old now. So that person, whoever he is, wherever he is now, I, I wish him the best because if ever his name gets out there, God knows what might not happen to him. I mentioned I talked to Victor Brabanek over email. He said he'd get back to me. I yelled him three times, and he decided not to respond to my request. So he might be spooked, too. So I also suspect that there were more people that night that saw the explosion and chose not to talk about it because it was a very good night to be out on the beach. The weather was perfect. It was a nice summer night. There hadn't more than three people that saw the explosion, but three people did talk about it and we give them credit for their courage. All right, uh, John, stay put. We'll take a time out, come back, take some more calls, questions, and comments for John Kerner, author of Exploding the Truth, the JFK Jr. Assassination. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And we are back with John Kerner, the author of Exploding the Truth, the JFK Jr. Assassination. It's interesting that the time of year, it was a, it was three years earlier that the TWA 800 mm-hmm. uh, plane went down and many people, I'm not sure how many witnesses uh, saw the, um, what it looked to be a missile being fired right. from the ground, striking the plane. I'm not mm-hmm. sure if that was sort of roughly in the same area. I think that was over, over Long Island, right. uh, where that plane went down. Uh, but the timing is interesting. Do you think there's any connection there? I think it, the connection is that you want to have a place where it's not over land. Because if you have an explosion over the land, there's more witnesses and more people can gather things from their homes, from the ground. But if it's over the, the sea, if it's over water, then it can be sealed off by the Navy and the CIA. They can take things under more control then. So the timing is essential here that the explosion takes place for both of these right over the water where it can be easily controlled with, with in this case, 14 nautical miles rather than over the ground. They need to wait till they're over the, over the sea in both cases for those particular situations and to come to the conclusion where they're both explosions and then you have them easily controlled over water. All right. Augie is in New York, and he um, he's on the line. Augie, go ahead. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Thank you, Richard. I, I just wanted to ask a question. Earlier in the program, when you introduced the author, uh, he mentioned that he had contracted a disease that was specific to Southeast Asia. Uh, I'm wondering if he has any clue as to how he contracted that disease and also what did he ever get a, the name of the particular disease that almost took his life? Right. So this is summer of 2012, I guess it was, and I was in Buffalo General Hospital. And the doctors that summer were fighting for my life. And it was some kind of flesh-eating disease. It was, a, it was, my lungs were filling up with fluid and my face was filling up with fluid. I had to have several surgeries to drain fluid from my body. 
my muscles were contracting. I lost 45 pounds. And the closest thing that they could tell me is that you have something that looks like it is from Southeast Asia. Have you ever been to Southeast Asia? And I said, I never, I didn't even have a passport. I've never been to Southeast Asia. Wow. So I said, whatever you have only is native to there. So we have no idea how you got it. It looks like you've been poisoned somehow. And at that point in my life, I was completely healthy. Obviously, I'm a public figure. I give speeches. I give tours. I give lectures. I'm out in the public a lot. So it's it's easily, I can be, I'm accessible. So somehow I contracted this illness, and they said, you should be dead. There's no reason you should be alive. Somehow you've survived. And my family noted that there were several times where there were these unmarked black helicopters that were buzzing my house while I was in the hospital. So it was it was a bizarre summer when this happened. And I don't understand how I survived, but I, I somehow did. Uh, absolutely incredible. Uh, I, I thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Augie, thank you. Great to hear from you. There's Augie in New York. Um, you know, the, the interesting thing is the, the Clintons, um, certainly Bill Clinton and George, um, George W. have been quite friendly. Uh, and, and George uh, Sr., before he was confined to a wheelchair when he wasn't in such frail health, they would, they would, um, uh, be involved in joint ventures, things like hurricane relief and so forth. Uh, what do you suppose changed? I mean, if the Clintons were close to the Kennedys, surely the Clintons must have suspected something. Well, I, yeah, th- I think this happens years later. I mean, this is a recent phenomenon with Bill and, and George W. Bush. I think it's simple because of one reason. The presidency is a very exclusive boys club, I guess you could say. And they take care of each other. When they're ex-presidents, they they tend to go to events together. They, they become friends almost all the time. They want to show themselves as statesmen. So this happens quite a bit. Um, Eisenhower became friends with Truman. He often would talk to JFK during the missile crisis. Jimmy Carter has become friends with the Bush family, too. So after these men leave the presidency, they kind of put their differences aside and want to show themselves, for history's sake, despite what they might feel personally, to show the world that they're great leaders, they're statesmen, they can cross party lines and have history write them up as good, honorable men, when in fact they might have, who knows, in their private lives, different feelings about these people. Why didn't other members of the Kennedy family uh, speak up after uh, his death and at least raise some of these questions? You know, why were they? Why they? Why did they take so long to, to recover the bodies? Uh, why such a large debris field? Why weren't we allowed to? You know, to see the bodies sooner, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Why weren't the Kennedys speaking out? Well, Teddy Kennedy was. Um he was actually quite angry about what was going on. He was on the phone with President Clinton for almost the entire two days when they wouldn't let anyone in. So he was asking a lot of questions and quite angry about this. So we we we, we can at least give him some credit that we know for a fact that he was local media was reporting that he was 
really angry and upset that what, about what was going on, trying to get information from President Clinton. And even President Clinton didn't know what was going on because the Navy and the agency had sealed off the area to anyone. It was like they're this rogue government doing their own thing. So the Kennedy family, with this patriarch, Teddy Kennedy, was quite upset that they were not allowed in to handle this situation. Now, I have hope and faith that because, obviously, this is relatively, you know, recent 20 years, obviously, a long time, but there's still many people in the family that, that still could raise questions. Let's think, for example, about our Robert Kennedy's son, RFK Jr. We've, we know for a fact, we talked about this on the air, that he recently visited Sirhan Sirhan, and he's yes. come to the conclusion that that, of course, was a conspiracy. So there's a member of the family there we could point to that might have the courage to look at this situation, too. Maybe he could be called upon to have that same courage and have that sense of um, open-mindedness about this. Let's, let's hope he can have that, that approach, too. Did you reach out to any members of the Kennedy family? No, I, I didn't reach out to any of them. I felt like I didn't really need to. I want to be respectful of them and... I feel like if they want to approach me, if they want to have me investigate with them, I'd be more than willing to help them. I'm doing this for them and for the truth. I feel like they've been the target too much of this agency, and it, it needs to stop. And this has been a pattern going on since the 1960s, and this family has suffered way too much. And it just the truth needs to come out, and it, it needs to stop. Uh, Melanie is in Toronto. Melanie, good evening, good morning. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Good evening. I was going to go to bed early, but you guys are keeping me awake. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, is there a possibility this could be tied into the 9-11 pre uh, could have been a pre uh, preemptive to to test out the waters as to how far they could go, and also another question: He had an um, cast, I believe, on his leg. Was he on any medication? And also, and one more question: Who ordered the cremation? And what about his wife? Was she also cremated? Or and the sister? And who ordered the cremations? And um, basically, could it be connected maybe to? Uh, the uh, 9-11 pre, I mean, at that time, we know that one of the guys was in Egypt, the um, the main guy in Egypt who ordered the 9-11 uh, was testing and bombing, uh, placing bombs or whatever at the World Trade Center. So could he have had something to do with it? Because we know that the Nazis had their submarines in the Second World War all the way up to almost New York, right? So could there be a possibility it could have been done from... Uh, from the water could have been just a, a test. Well, that's an interesting point. Why do we assume it was a bomb on board the plane? Why not a missile? Yeah, I think it's possible. Yeah, you could have a surface-to-air missile. I mean, that the, the, the interesting point is that all three of them, the witnesses that we know, they hear and see the same thing. They they see an explosion, this flash of light accompanied by an explosion. So flash of light, explosion. So could there have been a missile that caused that? Certainly. I think that's a possibility. So they all are consistent with their reports. So that, that's interesting. Or could there have been a collision with perhaps a, a, a drone? That's possible, too. I look at that possibility in the book. There is this thing on the Predator drone agency had that they could mount a missile on or a bomb. That's also possible, too. She also mentioned this connection to 9-11. It's interesting. 
the air field where JFK Jr. took off from is the same airfield where pilots that trained for 9-11 attacks trained from. So those terrorists were working out of that aircraft facility, doing training, eventually did attack the World Trade Center at 9-11. So that was a couple of years, uh, one year later, that was the same airfield that that aircraft take off, took off from. As I mentioned, there's very lax security there. So there is a connection that we can make with that that she's mentioning. Interesting. All right, uh, John, stay put. We'll take a time out, come back, take some more calls, questions, and comments for John Kerner, author of Exploding the Truth, the JFK Jr. Assassination. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. I was just reading a, a New York Times article from July 22nd, 1999, talking about the recovery of the bodies. Now get this. The remains were located at 2.30 a.m., on July 22nd, 2.30 in the morning, by an underwater camera checking objects detected by sonar. Now get this. The bodies were raised about 4.30 p.m. 14 hours to raise the bodies? What's going on there, John? <laughs> That's very suspicious, Richard. And you have all that time to rework the bodies to make it look like there wasn't an explosion. So you have, again, no one allowed in there except the CIA and the Navy. So the agency is very skilled at body manipulation. Just look at what they did to President Kennedy's body to make it look like in the autopsy photographs that he was not shot in the back of the head, that there was a, there was not a frontal wound in the, and there was not a front wound and an exit wound in the back. They made it look like the back of the head was covered up. So obviously there was enough time there for them to rework the bodies make it look like it was not an explosion, but an accident. All right, let's say hi to Ed in London, Ontario. Ed, good morning. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. You're on the line with John Kerner. Thank you. I'd like to make a couple of comments on a few things that have been said. Uh, first of all, I think the coastline along there, isn't it well populated? That would be very well lit, so it would be hard to be disoriented. Uh, you could see the coastline from uh, that distance and that height easily. Interesting point. That's yes. a second comment on the rudder pedals. I'm surprised they haven't had a, had a pilot call in. The rudder pedals, uh, of course, work your rudder for left and right. They also work your ailerons for bank and turn, and you, uh, on the older aircraft, work the brakes. All right, so he would have been using that foot on the rudder pedals and the brakes. Uh, but, uh, uh, John, did you want to add anything further to that? Yeah, we can point out that even if he was having trouble with that, he used autopilot. And we also can point out that he, this is such a key thing. He takes off with no incident. Everything's fine. He flies for one hour with no incident. So if he had any trouble with his, you know, his leg or the aircraft, he would have said so at 9.39 p.m. when he calls into the Invented Airport to say he's on approach to land. He made no distress call. So obviously this indicates that the aircraft was fine and he was fine and the weather was fine too. Just a couple more points, if you don't mind. Please go ahead, Ed. Sounds yes. like a typical low-tech World War II bomb where it arms on the way up and explodes on the way down. It's, uh, it's uh, triggered by barometric pressure. That's a very low-tech, uh, old-school old, old bomb, <laughs> possibly. And, and the last point I'd like to make, please, is that the 14-mile debris field is because uh, you're talking about floating debris, which are uh, wheels with tires. Suitcases, seat backs, seat cushions. They, uh, you know, 
they will go for miles if there's a wind or a, or a current, but uh, the aircraft parts certainly wouldn't be spread over 14 miles unless it was a Challenger uh, spacecraft right. or something. At that low altitude, they'd have a smaller debris field than 14 miles. Interesting point. So we should clarify. Are we talking about a debris field found on the bottom of the ocean of, of parts, or are we talking about floating debris, which, if it drifts, as Ed points out, that wouldn't be unusual? No, what we're talking about what happens here is, according to, to, to Jim Mars, using his investigation, he says that if this was an accident, you'd have everything in one spot. You'd have the bodies, the luggage, the aircraft, everything in one area at the bottom of the ocean. It would fall right into the ground, everything in the bottom of the ocean together because it would, there'd be no explosion. Then the aircraft wouldn't break apart in the air. It'd go all down into the ocean and nothing would happen other than that. You put everything in the bottom of the ocean, bodies, everything, the aircraft intact, crushed together as one. That's not what took place here. You had over a large area, even on land, not drifting onto land, but on land, you found things where there are sneakers, luggage, wheels, all kinds of things, not drifted up, but on the land itself, as if it flew several miles. So that's different than what you're saying there. That indicates an explosion of breach of the aircraft, something quite different. Ed, thanks. Great questions. Great comments. All right, we'll take another time out, uh, John. Stay put. I'm back with more of our discussion of JFK Jr. with John Kerner right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. John Kerner is with us for the full two hours. The book is Exploding the Truth, the JFK Jr. assassination. It'll be 20 years next July uh, that he, his wife and sister-in-law went down into the Atlantic Ocean off of Martha's Vineyard in their uh, Piper Saratoga plane. Uh, not a mere uh, plane accident due to pilot error, says John. There was a mid-air explosion. Uh, so we're talking assassination. If the aircraft blew up in the air and parts fell from the sky, it's, it's possible that there were pieces of the aircraft on land, small pieces. I mean, were naval people searching the land? Were there, were they combing the land to, to make sure that all the evidence was, was cleaned up? Uh, were, yes, were, yeah. were people, were, were people questioned and asked, did you find anything? Right, absolutely. And this is the thing, I think, why I mentioned this has to happen over the water. Because if you have the aircraft, if the bomb goes off over land, or if the missile is sent to the aircraft over land, that's much more problematic. Because then you have people's homes, you have to, you know, find debris there, there's no more witnesses. But if it explodes over the water, then you can have the Navy go in and the agency go in and clean up the area and make it look like an accident. But one problem they had is because the explosion was so violent, as I said, there were things that they did find on the land very far north that people did find, including the local sheriff. So that was one thing that happened. We did find some people that were discovering things, like a sneaker, as I mentioned, a wheel, luggage, those sort of things. But the rest, as you said, was cleaned up by the Navy, make it look like an accident. 
of course, when something like this happens and we we uh, accuse somebody of a cover up or a conspiracy, the the critics, the skeptics um, have it's it's a, a legitimate question. Is think about how many people would have to be involved to cover something like this up. You have the 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 navy divers, you have the uh, the coast guard, you have uh, the um, the medical examiner, the people performing the autopsy, the people that were there present uh, when the bodies were uh, recovered, and so on and so forth. How do you keep a lid on something like that? Well, I'm not going to try to answer that question. I'm just going to point to what, what I found out, the facts. The fact is that 2.15 a.m., uh, the Navy said that they had found the Pepper Saratoga Rescue Beacon. This was reported by ABC News and NBC News. And then they said on the air that, no, it was a downed Navy military aircraft in that same spot. So at that point in time, you have to conclude one of two things. They're lying about something. Either They either did find the Pepper Saratoga or one of their aircraft was crashing there at that same spot. So that alone proves that they're lying. And because they're lying about that, what else are they lying about? And you can take it from there. That's the biggest proof I have of conspiracy. Because after that, you have to find out where was the aircraft, who died in the crash, where are the family, were they, were they notified? If that's not the case, then they did find the Pepper of Saratoga and lied about it for some reason to cover up the area. So that one fact alone proves a conspiracy, and you go from there. Your publisher, were they at all hesitant about publishing this book? Not at all. I mean, they had been so great about this. I mean, they they published the other book I wrote about the Kennedy family that we've you know, talked about extensively, the drug trade in Laos. And they've always been very supportive of this. Uh, they did no editing of the manuscript other than just basically proofreading it. So it's it's um, to their credit that they've been behind me the whole way. And um, again, let me, I wanted to ask you about whether you've had any suspicious activity around you since this book is now out. Um, because, as you mentioned earlier, on the eve of the publication of your first book on JFK, uh, you were, it sounds like, you were poisoned. Um, anything suspicious happened to you since you, you, you've published this book? Uh, I could tell you about it off the air if you want, Richard, but, um, yeah, something. No, nope. I, I respect that. I don't want to. I about it off the air, yeah. Something, something did happen, yeah. It's, um, uh, we could talk about it off the air if you'd like, yes. Absolutely. No, we, I, I'd, I'd like to hear it, but no, I don't want you to, uh, I don't want to put you in a spot here. Um, and so did that, did that incident lead to your decision that this may likely be your last book? I don't know, Richard. I mean, the other books I've written, it just seems like, I don't know. I, I, it seems like, I tried to publish these books and write these books, not publish, but write these books. And people just, I hope they just can look at them from my perspective. I spent so many years researching them. I try my best to lay them out logically with all the facts covered. And it just seems like there's just so much resistance to this. I sometimes get discouraged. So I don't know. I mean, I hope I can write again. Um, I, 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 if I, if, Hope I can at some point. I just I get I get discouraged when people don't 
have the same perspective as I do. I just we can be open minded about things, and hopefully they will. Who's who's been resisting you? Who's resisting you? I mean, have there been have there been reviews written or debunkers coming after you? Well, I mean, just anecdotally, I mean, when I've I've been a couple of speeches about the book and locally, and I just tried to when people are making observations, it's hard to go back at them and explain what they're talking about is not factually based in evidence. I, I'm trying to come back at them with facts and evidence and just don't understand that just because it's a conspiracy doesn't mean that it's some wild theory i'm trying to write things from the perspective of what i see from facts evidence and research not from you know some kind of wild conspiracy theory that people might just label as being some from some nutcase well, that's what makes this book so dangerous and perhaps makes you so dangerous. Uh, John, um, thank you so much. Listen, hey, maybe, maybe someone like, someone like Oliver Stone will, uh, will, um, take a look at this book and decide to turn this into a movie at, like he did with, uh, with JFK. Wouldn't I mean, that be it something? Deserves, it deserves, um, it deserves notoriety. I, I wish people would, would read the book with an open mind. That's all I ask. Just read the book with an open mind. That's all. Uh, give us the details on where we can get a copy of Exploding the Truth, the JFK Jr. Assassination. It's at Amazon.com Canada, and Kronos has it too, and my website has it as well. All right, folks, go out and support John Kerner. And I will speak to you on Coast to Coast later this month, my friend. That would be wonderful, Richard. Thank you so much for tonight. I appreciate it so much. Thank you. All right, thanks to uh, Ian back in the studio, Ryan in his lair in East York, and uh, Albert, God bless you wherever you are. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite, I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.